Section 17 of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the China Coast by Dolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Section 17 The Leonid. They were sitting in the cabin of the second officer of the Kroksang at Chimoy, recalling memories of the first Jubilee. I was just out of my teens then, concluded the white-haired consul's constable after a reminiscence. I say chuck it, remonstrated the second. I was no giddy chicken myself in 87. The consul's constable eyed him with a nascent indignation. Then his eyes twinkled. Now, how old would you put me down to be? He asked presently. The second officer looked him critically over. Well, wishing to flatter you, I should start the bidding at fifty. And you? I should go five better, returned that individual. The consul's constable smiled a little smile that softened for the moment the haggard lines of his face. I suppose you'd be surprised if I told you I was only thirty-four, he asked. I'd be more than surprised, the second assured him. I'd be jolly well incredulous. Nevertheless, mused their visitor, there are some things that age a man more in a week than ten years of ordinary living can. Whiskey's one, murmured the first, taken inconsiderately. The consul's constable saw the need of vindication. Did you ever have a meteorite fall near you at sea? he questioned. Can't say I have. Well, I will tell you about one. But the second held up his hand, entreating delay, and bellowed, Boy! When the china boy made his appearance, he pointed desolately to the empty glasses. Then, while their visitor held his new-filled glass to the light and gazed at it with the critical eye of the connoisseur, the second coiled himself up more comfortably on the settee, and the first swung into the bunk. The consul's constable absorbed the moisture on the inside of his glass and looked up. "'What do you want? The yarn of the Leonid?' "'We want to know why you are thirty-four instead of sixty-four,' the second told him severely. Well, it happened more than ten years ago, when I was a scatterbrained, devil-may-care youngster like yourself. The second officer smiled indulgently. Steady as she goes, he murmured, and held the appointment of third mate in a little coaster owned by a syndicate of wealthy Chinese merchants. We were manned much the same as you, white officers and engineers, China crew and Malay quartermaster, and used to run down to Saigon and Java, or anywhere that the kind fates offered a decent cargo. At the time of the occurrence, of which I am to tell you, we were on our way up from Bangkok to Hong Kong. It was a fine starlit night, and my eight to twelve watch on the bridge of size. I was leaning over the rail looking up at the constellation of Orion, some of the stars of which were crossing the meridian about that time, and wondering if it were worth while taking a couple of altitudes when I saw a shooting star shine out no Betelgeuse, and travel across the heavens. One is always more or less interested in a brilliant meteorite, and as I watched this one, its angular motion seemed to be getting slower and slower, and the star growing brighter. A moment after I realized with a start that it had left the tangent on which it was moving and was traveling straight towards us. By this time it was far brighter than Venus at her best, and I was debating in my mind whether I should slip down and give the skipper a shake-up, when there came a blinding glare, with a sudden glow of intense heat in my face, followed almost instantly by a terrific explosion. 
that made the old ship reel and tremble from truck to keelson, as the meteorite plunged into the sea a couple of miles on the starboard bow. Little enough need was there, then, to call anybody, for the whole ship's company, from the captain to the cook's boy, came pouring up on deck, inquiring with scared faces what had happened. Well, I still clung to the bridge rails, blinded by the light that had so swiftly been extinguished, and half stunned by the concussion, a dense bank of steam or something rolled like a pall over our ship. The lights flickered for a little, and went out, and we found ourselves in impenetrable darkness. But this was not the worst. We had turned the ship's head to windward with the idea of steaming out of the fog. But before the engines had made a dozen revolutions, first one began to cough, then another. We felt a choking sensation, followed by ever-increasing difficulty of breathing. And as the sulfurous fumes got denser, we lost our heads in the terror of this unknown thing and panic reigned. I can recollect as I fought desperately in that utter blackness for breath, seeing one of the quartermasters rush past, shrieking like mad. Then a Chinaman dashed himself blindly against me, recoiled and fell howling to the deck, where he writhed and gasped, tearing wildly at his throat with both hands. Groping my way along the bridge, I tried to get down the ladder leading to the main deck, missed my footing and fell several feet, landing at last on something soft. It was darker still here, but I seemed to breathe a little easier, and feeling round with my hands, I concluded I must be in the lower hold. In my panic, I had slipped through the ladder rail and plunged feet first down one of the cowls that ventilated the lower hold. No, you needn't look at me. I know very well I'd stand a good chance of sticking halfway now. I was slimmer then. Granted, said the second impatiently. Go on with the yarn. Well, luckily for me, I had come down on bags of rice, and though a good bit shaken, was unhurt. The hold was only two-thirds full, so there was ample standing room between the bags and the tween decks. As I sat half-dazed under the ventilator, wondering how I was to get up again, the terrible choking vapour came pouring down on me, threatening soon to make the hold as deadly as the deck I had so precipitately left. There was not much time to think matters over. I saw that if I wanted time to draw many more comfortable breaths, I must stuff that ventilator up. So drawing my knife, I slit three or four bags, emptied the rice out, and jammed them with all my strength up the shaft. Then stumbling across the bags, I did the same with a port ventilator, and when I had got them as airtight as I could, I found I could breathe with comparative freedom. There I resolved to wait until that beastly fog cleared up a bit, but the number two hold of a thousand-ton steamer is none too big to be pleasant, particularly when it's nearly full, so I told myself I didn't care how soon the vapor cleared away and gave me the chance of getting out without choking myself. While I sat there wondering what they were doing on deck, straining my ears to catch the slightest sound, I fancied the regular beat of the propeller was getting slower. Five minutes after I was sure they were slowing her down on deck, and after another half hour the engine seemed to be hardly moving. What was the idea, I wondered, of slowing her down so gradually? While I was still trying to account for this, the engines gave a convulsive throb, swung for a moment or two over their centers, then stopped altogether. Still, I could hear no sound from the deck, nothing but the swish of the water against the ship's sides as she rose and fell on the light swell that was running. One can't stand that sort of suspense for long, with nothing but the monotonous lap of the water to be heard, so I got up and pulled the bags to one side, 
with the intention of sending up a hail for a rope. But a downward rush of deadly gas made me stuff them up again, as hard as I could, and sit down again with more fear in my heart than I had felt when I came down here. Then it had been hot, unreasoning panic, but now I felt that something had gone wrong. I must have heard them moving about on deck if they had not left the ship. And why would they want to leave her? Had anything happened after that fog came along? Look at it which way I would. It was no pleasant predicament I found myself in, cooped up in the hold in blank darkness and utter silence, except for the wash. But I dared not tackle that ventilator again till the vapor had cleared, so there was nothing to do but wait. I tell you, though, I felt like a youngster who is locked up in a dark cellar and doesn't know what is going to happen next. I hung out like that for the rest of the night, and when I thought morning had come, I tried the ventilator again. The air had cleared a good deal, but a violent fit of coughing warned me of the impossibility of gaining the deck. All that day I waited, suffering agonies of thirst, and slowly the following night dragged itself away. A racking pain in my head and a tightness across the chest, as of slowly contracting iron bands, proved to me pretty forcibly that the confined air of the hold was becoming unbreathable, that I must make another attempt to get up on deck, or perish miserably where I stood. It was about ten in the morning, as nearly as I could judge, when I came to the final decision of getting out of this, even if it should mean out of the frying pan into the fire. I pulled the bags down and looked up. The air seemed clear enough, and the bit of sky I could see was blue and tranquil but there was still a distinct trace of the sulfurous fumes of yesterday in the air. Anyhow, it looked more promising than the hole, but how was I to reach there? To climb up that narrow shaft was out of the question. Some other way had to be found. I found a way by standing on the iron hold ladder, and with that what little strength remained to me, pushing aside one of the tween-deck hatches sufficiently to scramble through. I found myself, stiff and sore, in the tween-decks, but there still remained the main deck hatches overhead, and these must be battened down, else the gas would have filtered through. There could be no chance of raising them, and I spent a fruitless hour in hammering on them with a piece of dunnage wood in the hopes of their hearing me on deck. As I sat resting and considering what was best to be done, I remembered the little skylight with the glass flaps on the foredeck. This skylight had always been a thorn in our sides, and if the angels took careful note of what we said about it, all of us must long since have lost our chance of heaven. The builders had put it in her for convenience of Chinese tween-deck passengers, and whenever there was a bit of sea on that skylight used to get stove in. Now I blessed the skylight and blessed the builder who put it there. With a piece of dunnage wood I smashed the glass, and climbing through the hole found myself on deck. There I stood stock still, wondering if the sudden glare of light had affected my sight. Sea deck, hatches, everything around appeared to my dazed eyes pale pink. To prove myself that my eyes were somehow wrong, I passed my hand across the skylight from which I had just emerged. It was covered by a light, impalpable powder, which the current of air raised by my hand sent circling up in clouds. The sea was glassy, and I could see the powder floating on, and under the surface to the depth of three or four feet. The consul's constable stopped and shivered a little and the second officer silently passed him the bottle. After he had gulped down a few mouthfuls of raw whiskey, he went on. I saw one of the Chinamen lying on deck, apparently asleep. But when I went up to him, I uttered a cry of horror. The man was dead as a doornail, 
dead and rigid, with the pink dust covering him over like a light veil. With an indescribable thrill of fear, I ran up on the lower bridge and looked around. The captain was lying, or rather crouching, at the foot of the upper bridge ladder, his eyes wide open and his face contorted and livid. A piece of his coat was stuffed into his mouth, and the teeth had closed on it, holding it as in a vice. He too was covered with the dust, and when I went up to him and tried to sweep it from his face, the skin came away in my hand. I turned away dizzy and sick, and hunted through the ship, nothing but the ghastly dead. Dead but two days and already rotting and putrid. I stood still and shouted, or rather I tried to shout, but my voice rose in a scream and quavered away to a groan. Nothing answered me but the swish of the water alongside. I found the second officer lying a few feet from the chart house, his eyes fixed in a glassy stare, and his teeth drawn back from the livid lips in what seemed to my distorted fancy a savage snarl. Two of the engineers I found in the lower bridge with the same twisted limbs and contorted features, and covered with that horrible dust, but nowhere did I find a living being. The chief officer I never saw. Perhaps he had leapt overboard in his frenzy. My movements were sending the dust whirling about the deck again, and it was beginning to choke me. I sat down with my back against the fiddly and tried to think. My nerves were thoroughly unstrung. I remember thinking with amusement of the numerous rats that had pestered us and wondered how they had fared. Then I suddenly burst into tears and cried for half an hour like a little child. That seemed to relieve me, and after a while hunger and thirst drove me down to the pantry in search of food. The steward had dropped in his tracks and was lying athwart the pantry door, glaring at me with glassy eyes. I cowered back, shuddering, until hunger impelled, I darted forward and, snatching a piece of meat that lay on the dresser, just within the door, retreated. But the first ravenous bite I took caused me to spit it out and cough. It was impregnated with the terrible gas that had wrought such havoc among my shipmates. The water was the same, but I remember the aerated waters that were kept in the ice chest. Being corked, they were undefiled by the gas, and with these a tin of lobster which I found and opened, I refreshed myself. Then I returned to the deck and tried to realize my position. I was alone on the wide sea with nothing but the rotting corpses of my former shipmates, staring at me with filmy eyes for company. I rose in despair and wandered down into the engine room and thence into the stokehold. We'd been about eighty or ninety miles off Cape Varela when the deadly meteorite fell, and perhaps if I could succeed in getting steam up alone, I might make the coast or get into the track of vessels. At least the motion would blow that vile dust away. The boilers were still hot, and a thin jet of steam singing through a leak in the stop valve above seemed to promise success, but when I opened the furnace doors and tried to rake out the burnt fuel, I found to my dismay that the pink dust, drawn by the draught into the fires, had melted and cooling again, had formed a thin metallic coating over the whole mass, binding it firmly together and making it impossible to break off the smallest lump. Back I went to the deck, with the vision of a livid, twisted fireman grinning at me in ghastly derision. I felt I was going mad, for I was babbling and laughing aloud. Why had I been reserved for this? Would to God I whimpered that I had not fallen down the ventilator. How long would it take to die? 
Should I have to wander about the grim dead until, my stock of waters being exhausted, I'd laid myself down beside them to die of the slow agony of thirst? I sat down again and looked around. The second officer was lying on the deck a few feet away, his limbs extended to their fullest stretch. And the hands clenched so tightly that I could see where the nails had cut into the flesh. He was lying on his back, inclined a little toward the left but his head was twisted round until, glaring over his right shoulder, the glassy orbs were turned full on me. As I looked at him again, I felt the hair rising erect on my head and the blood freezing in my veins. The eyes seemed fixed on mine, with a leer of understanding that it seemed impossible could creep into the eyes of a man two days dead and well on the way to putrefaction. Then, while I stared in fascination at the dreadful sight, the snarl on his lips seemed to broaden into a horrible smile of savage triumph. I sprang up with a shriek that rang through the silent ship and stumbled in terror farther from the grisly thing. But when I dared look again, the eyes had followed my movements and were staring at me. With the same grim, frightful malice, I whimpered like a little child in my anguish and horror. Then I laughed long and loud. I knew then that if I was to preserve my tottering reason, I must get rid of those frightful corpses that seemed to be luring me on to join them in that set smile of death. The prospect of action of some sort served to steady my shattered nerves. There lay in the wheelhouse a few feet away a detached cogwheel that had been used with the hand steering gear. This I dragged out and with averted head made fast to the second officer's feet. The skin and flesh fell away from the softened bones as I touched him, and clung in shreds to my fingers, but I was calm with the stillness of despair, and hardly heeded the reeking stench of putrid flesh that arose when I disturbed him. With infinite pains I succeeded, weak as I was, in getting the body poised on the rail, and held it there, staring stupidly at the knotted muscles on the hands and arms, some of them showing blue and white where the flesh had fallen away and left them exposed. What had I to do now, I tried to think. He had once been a shipmate of mine, this ghastly mass of rotting flesh, and a good sort in his way, though a little wild and given to aimless frolic. Perhaps he was sorry for it now. Ah, yes, the burial service. What was it? I'd seen several poor fellows buried at sea, but now my bewildered brain would recall no word of the service but the ominous commit the body to the deep. Something came before that. What was it? I asked myself wildly. I tried to pray. I, who had uttered no word of prayer for long years. And never a prayer would come. All this time I was keeping the corpse balanced across the rail. And every now and then a great mass of the flesh would detach itself from the rest. Torn away by its own weight. And fall with a sickening thud to the deck. Then as I leaned a little forward... I caught again the stare of those horrible filmy eyes, and with a shudder, I pushed the corpse far out from me and stood watching it as it slowly sank alongside. The eyes were still wide open, and after circling slowly down a little way, it turned on its back and stared mockingly up at me through the clear seas as the arms relaxed by the water floated upwards, as though inviting me to join it. Little bits of clothing and flesh floated round it. Some still held to the corpse by strings and tendons. It sank out of sight at last, and I stood I knew not how long gazing horrified into the water. When I seemed to see the thing reappear again, a few fathoms from the surface floating slowly upwards, I looked helplessly at it with its arms held toward me. 
waving gently to and fro as it swung, and gradually the face was turned full toward me, and I staggered back with screams of mad terror. The face that looked up at me from below there was my own face. A terrible fascination drew me back irresistibly to the rails, and I stood looking down at my other self as it floated beneath the water, smiling that sardonic smile. Twice as my brain reeled with horror of the thing, I started to clamber over the rail toward it, and twice drew back shivering. It was myself, my features, line for line, even to the deep scar you see on my cheek, and it was inviting me to peace and rest in the translucent depths below there. I must go. I felt I must, for there were the grisly corpses of my former shipmates urging me on from behind. At last, as with a supreme effort, I tore my eyes away and cast one last imploring look at the relentless skies, my heart commenced to beat again for joy. There, not two miles away, was the French mail steamer, standing down toward me, black wreaths of smoke pouring from her funnels. I think it was that throbbing pain of joy that came with the knowledge that I was near living human beings that saved me from stark insanity at that critical moment. The intensity of my relief so overpowered me at first that I cared not whether they saw me. I was not alone on the boundless sea with this charnel ship. That was the only thought that tingled its way through my brain. There were living beings near me, beings who could speak, beings who would not glare at me so wherever I went. Beings whose flesh was firm and sweet, not like these that hung in putrid tatters. Then came the horrible fear that they would pass on and leave me alone again, and with the thought came action. If I was to receive help, I must hoist some signal. I was turning away with the intention of doing this when I saw a patch of color flutter out from a bridge and climb slowly to the jumper's stay. With the naked eye, I could make out the flags to be BSL, and rushing into the chart house, I dragged out the code list and read the signal. Is anything the matter? My mind was still too hazy to be able to think of any definite answer, for I found myself hunting about among the geographical signals, However, while idly turning over the leaves, my eye lit on the urgent signal column, and the flags PB want immediate assistance. And fervishly pulling the flags from their pigeonholes, I bent them on and ran them up to the stay. Then as I saw the steamer's propeller churning astern and a boat being lowered, ship and horizon commenced reeling round and heaving. A red mist swam before my eyes, and with the halyard still in my hands, I lurched heavily forwards, and everything became a blank. The consul's constable stopped and sat gazing moodily at his glass. The second leaned forward and refilled it. And what became of the ship? Sold. Why did they sell her? The second officer's curiosity was not yet satisfied. Well, what happened afterward I will have to tell you in the words of the second officer of the Gascoigne. He was a very decent sort, or a Frenchman, and used to come and see me at the military hospital in the Rue Chasselou Lubac where they took me with brain fever every time the ship came to Saigon. He spoke a fair amount of English, and what I made out about it was this. He had been very much surprised on clambering up from the boat to find the main deck deserted, and that pink powder I told you of scattered all round. Spying a Chinaman apparently asleep on the hatch, he walked up to him, and to his horror found him to be dead. As he hurried up to the lower bridge, he passed two more dead Chinamen, and on the bridge itself the engineers, lying as I have described, at the break of the bridge he found me, and seeing that I was still alive sent the boat back for the surgeon. They carried me aboard the Gascogne, insensible, and sent back a crew and two engineers to try and get up steam again. 
They had first to give the ship's company decent burial, and the second of the Gascoignas said it was about the most gruesome job he ever thought of doing. Several of the men turned green about the gills over it and vomited, in spite of unlimited cognac, had to be sent back to the ship. After they got the last remnant of rotting flesh over the side, they went below, but found it impossible to dislodge the curiously caked fuel that choked the furnaces, and had to take her in tow to Saigon. There the Chinese merchants, her owners, directed the ill-fated vessel should be sold for whatever she would fetch, and the whole lot paid over to the massageries company as salvage adding that they must decline to entertain any further correspondence on the subject of the Bad Josh ship. I don't know what became of her after that. She must have been sent home. She never would have been of further use in eastern waters, marked down as she was as a Devil Josh ship. When I came out of hospital, the British consul at Saigon had me sent on to Hong Kong as a DBS, and there they wanted me to go home, but I would not go, and so I drifted up here and got this job. Why didn't you want to go home? asked first. To tell you the truth, my nerves were too shattered to stand the sea voyage. Even coming across the Saigon, I was shivering like a scared horse all the way. But how about going home later on? asked the second. I shall never go, he replied sadly. The mere thought of the sea sets me shuddering. You may think it folly, but even here on dry land I dare not if I am alone. Look up at that group of Orion, for the stars that seem to be rushing down on me, burning into my brain like balls of fire, and I catch myself listening, trembling again for that terrific explosion that was the commencement of the horror, which in three short days transformed me from a light-hearted youngster into the decrepit old man you say I look. End of section 17 End of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the China Coast